there, and welcome back to the Out of the Cave podcast with Lisa Schlossberg. This is Lisa Schlossberg, and today, today it's just me again, and I am going to be continuing our conversation that we've started over the last few episodes about truth, telling the truth, embodying your truth, living your truth, and why that has everything to do with a healthy relationship not just with yourself in general, but the way that that affects your relationship with food, eating, and body image. Now, wherever you are with your relationship with food, whether that is overeating, undereating, mindless eating, stress eating, emotional eating, restrictive eating, disordered eating, however it manifests for you right now, I think there are two really important concepts that can help you understand how this happened to you and how to start working your way out of the relationship with food you're in right now and toward the lifestyle you really desire. Now, the first of these two concepts is something that I've talked about in theory before on the pod, but I wanna talk about it today in terms of giving you a real name and definition. The way that I've talked about the process of socialization before is when we talk about the first few years of our life, when we are learning how to be a human and we're taking cues from our environment, and this could be our immediate environment like mom and dad, and it can also be the larger cultural environment like the things that you see on TV or hear on the radio. All of that contributes to the process of socialization. And some examples that come to mind are always when we learn to look both ways before we cross the street. That's something that we have to be taught early on. And then it becomes habitual. It becomes just the way that we move through life. We also learn things like you can't just take your clothes off and run through the classroom if you feel like it. There are just cues that we start taking from our environment. And this is known as the process of socialization. So a definition that I found is the process by which a human being at infancy acquires the habits, beliefs, and accumulated knowledge of society through education and training by family, friends, culture, and systems slash institutions. So the important thing to me about this definition is two things. One, the process by which a human being at infancy acquires the habits and beliefs. So first, we just have to kind of shine the light on the fact that this is starting as soon as we get here. It's not necessarily happening consciously, but it does begin at infancy, that we start accumulating the knowledge of society is the other important part. So It doesn't necessarily mean that you, the essence of the human that you are, agree with any of what you're learning or internalizing. It just means that you're taking in the accumulated knowledge of the collective, of the society that you are born within. So whether it's true or not is not really up for debate or not really the point. Whether it's good for you or not is also not really the point. And whether it's going to serve you in your highest, best life is also not the point. The point is that starting at infancy, you take in cues from your environment, 
whether they are quote unquote good for you and your health or not. Now, in addition to the process of socialization, I think it's also really powerful to know about the theory of the false self versus the true self. And this is a psychological concept that I'll explain with a definition that we also started to talk a little bit about in the last few episodes. And the reason to me it's so connected to the process of socialization is because we have our true self, our own thoughts, our own beliefs, our own experience, but then we have the process of socialization where we start to build and create this kind of false self so that we can get by in society and feel safe around other people. And so it may already intuitively make sense how this has everything to do with your relationship with food and eating and your body because we get a lot of that information from our society really early on. But I want to give you a couple definitions today just so you can start to see how this may have manifested in your life so far. So I'm going to read you a couple definitions that come from the American Psychological Association, the APA, if you want to look it up. Here's how their website would define the false self. In object relations theory of British psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott, the false self is the self that develops as a defense against impingements and in adaptation to the environment. The way that they define impingements is also within the object relations theory, an experience in the infant's maternal environment that is felt to be disturbing. Such experiences are posited to lead to the development of a false self because the infant may develop through a series of reactions to impingements rather than becoming aware of his or her true tendencies and capacities by discovering the environment on his or her own terms. This contrasts with the true self, which develops in an environment that adapts to the infant and allows him or her to discover and express true impulses. I also found it helpful to read that the false self is an artificial persona that people create very early in life to protect themselves from re-experiencing developmental trauma, shock, and stress in close relationships. And in contrast to that, the true self in psychoanalytic theory is the total of an individual's potentialities that could be developed under ideal social and cultural conditions. The term is used in the context of Eric Fromm's approach to neurosis as a reaction to cultural pressures and repressed potentialities. It is also used in the client-centered therapy of Carl Rogers and in the object relations theory of British psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott, as I mentioned. The realization of the true self is a major goal of therapy. So the reason I'm sharing all of this with you is really for many reasons, (laughs) but primarily because one, This is not to say that true and false self is good and bad or right or wrong. The first thing that I think is really important about this is that we all, all of us, inevitably, in some ways embody a false self 
because we have experienced shock and trauma and stress in close relationships. And one way that our brilliant brain knows how to defend and protect against us ever feeling that way again is to embody this false self. And so A, we all have it and we're all doing it to some degree. And that's not bad. We don't want to demonize or pathologize that. We really actually want to understand it as a strength, as almost a skill that is kind of operating behind the scenes. We're not doing it consciously necessarily, and it's here to make us feel safe. It's here to help us really just survive in the world. And the other reason I share this is because I think it's so powerful and so important to understand that even when we're moving in a way that is out of alignment with our truth, it's because of fear. And ultimately, our fear is even rooted in love. Our fear is trying to save us. Our fear is trying to protect us. Our fear is trying to keep us safe. So I just shout that out because instead of looking at your false self as something you want to get rid of or something that you're doing wrong, it's really to understand that this is the way your brain and the way your mind-body system ultimately has found safety. So there's nothing bad about it. There's nothing wrong about it. It's just that there are consequences to it. There are consequences to living in a place of falsity, ultimately. And as we've talked about on this podcast before, if we're not telling the truth, if we continue to repress the true self because it wasn't safe to embody that early on, if we perpetuate that lifestyle of stuffing ourselves down, well, again, the question is always, where does that energy go? And so for some of us, it becomes chronic pain symptoms in the body. For some of us, it becomes addiction and other compulsive behaviors. For some of us, it becomes a struggle with food and eating and body image. So all of this really at the root of it can be understood through that lens of true self or false self. It's in some ways an oversimplification, but in some ways it can be really helpful as we start to open up the conversation on food and eating and body image. And so the reason I think this is so important is because, well, again, there's a few reasons, (laughs) but ultimately because the quote unquote bad news is that you're probably entangled somewhat with your false self. And the good news is that you don't have to stay that way. (laughs) So That's how we're going to just kind of open up this conversation and go from there. Some ways you have your true self, your true beliefs, your true desires, your true opinions, the truth that lives within you, and in some ways you're still embodying your false self. So how does that unfold here around food? For me, the false self and the true self relate directly to the conversation we talked about from Dr. Gabor Mate, the concept of attachment versus authenticity. So you can think about when you're in your quote-unquote false self, you're most likely going to be going for attachment, which is the external validation, looking for approval from other people. The concern is with others. It's outward. Whereas when you are embodying authenticity, 
your preoccupation is what's going on internally. Your focus is getting your own needs met regardless of how that might affect other people, whether other people like it or not, agree with it or not, would do the same thing or not. So attachment and authenticity we can understand as kind of like the false self versus the true self. Now, the reason I bring it back to that is because when we're in our false self and the focus is attachment-based, what that means in terms of our mentality and the way that we think about ourselves is that it goes back again to that socialization process, is that it goes back to what we learned outside, what other people taught us, what the culture suggested was true about food and eating in our body. So when you're embodying your false self, consciously or not, this is when you yourself are objectifying your body. And what that means is you have fallen into the belief that you are only as good as your physical appearance. You're only as worthy as your weight. You are only lovable if you're in a certain body shape or size. It's perpetuating the cultural narrative that food and eating and exercise are for you to look a certain way. The false self objectifies you. And when you're in your false self, you're thinking of yourself as and your body ultimately as an ornament. It's almost like you're thinking of your body as something that is designed to look a certain way for other people to see and judge and measure and weigh and all of that. And so when you are in your false self, consciously or not, it's almost like the purpose of your body is to look good or be a certain weight, shape, size. It's the purpose feels as though it's your job to get your body to look a certain way or be a certain shape or size. So it's wrapped up in, again, that process of socialization because you were taught really early on from your society that if you can get yourself to look a certain way and be a certain weight, that there is a perception of safety that comes with that because it makes you feel safe around other people. And again, it goes back to that definition of the false self. That is, it helps you avoid stress, trauma, shock in relationships. And we have that belief that if we can just hold on to or control our bodies, that it will make us feel safe. And so we mindlessly have a tendency collectively to just perpetuate that really against ourselves. And that's not bad or wrong. It's not our fault. But again, it does have consequences and it doesn't feel so good. So that's what it is when you're in your false self and you're thinking about, you know, being attached to others as the way that you can feel safe. But what is it? How do we think? What do we believe when we come back to our true self, the true essence of who you are, and really when you're embodying your authenticity? Well, you have a belief in your true self that is the truth, ultimately. That is, you live inside your body. You know deep down that you are equally worthy, lovable, valued, regardless of your body, weight, shape, or size. And when you're coming from the place of telling the capital T truth and you are really embodying that, you have the consciousness where you can see that your body cannot possibly be good or bad. There is no right or wrong weight. 
or shape or size. Your body just is. Your body just is. And your body is your home. Your body is where you live. And the purpose of your body is that it's your home. It's your vessel for you to move through life. And it cannot possibly be good, bad, or right or wrong. It exists in reality as it is right now. And if we remove all of the judgment, criticism, fear, shame, all of what we've been taught by our society through that process of socialization, we would be coming back to the true self. That is, our body is our home. It is not designed to be anything but the vessel that carries us through this life. And so one beautiful way of thinking about this is your false self that is trying to feel safe in this society feels and believes like your body is an ornament. But your true self knows that your body is an instrument. So when you just want to flip, like I I'm just when I say that, I imagine like a, like a light switch, that when you are caught in your false self belief system, your limiting beliefs that your body is an ornament and you're trying to find your way out of that, how am I supposed to think about this again? What is my body again? How do I get back to my true self? You can flip that switch. That is your body is not an ornament. Your body is an instrument. Your body is here for you to live inside. And that is, again, just the capital T truth because you are a spiritual being having a physical experience. You are not a physical being. You are a soul. You have a body. It's not that you are a body and have a soul. You can think about it that way too. So now just having heard all of this, it's an invitation to gently consider what happens. Where are you with this, you know? Where are you in terms of embodying your true or false self in regards to your body and body image right now? So if you just consider what happens for you, what is your personal experience when you look in the mirror, when you actually confront the reflection of your body, when you see pictures of yourself, just taking a moment to consider, are you looking at a body or are you seeing a human being? Are you noticing just the physical? Or are you aware of and connected to your truth that you are the soul living inside of it? And ultimately, are you living as your true self or your false self in regards to your body? Because many of us, without paying attention to it, without drawing the awareness to it, and without becoming conscious of this, we just habitually embody the false self which is why many of you who are listening to this have the experience quite often of looking in the mirror and just being distracted by what you see physically and it becomes a series of things that you want to change or fix or even things that you like but either way you're defining yourself by your physical appearance and you are objectifying yourself and I'm not saying this with any blame or shame. I'm actually saying this because I want you to realize you're not doing anything wrong. And this is, even though, again, it doesn't feel good to you in your human brain, this is how your animal brain has learned to keep you safe. It 
feels and might believe that if it looks in the mirror and just starts objectifying you and it gives you the things that you want to fix and change, well, then at least it believes (laughs) you have some control, you know what to do. And it's a really effective way for you to not tap in to your truth and your feelings and the real authenticity of what is going on inside of you in that emotional world. So ultimately, if you are finding that you're perceiving your body as more of an ornament rather than an instrument, if you're seeing your body rather than yourself, and if you're defining yourself by your physical appearance without really, you know, looking through looking through your own eyes into the human being that you are, it's an indication that your false self is kind of driving the bus around this. And it's really that the original habit and tendency to choose attachment over authenticity. So first, we send so much love to this part of you. Your brain so brilliantly created this mental matrix to help you feel safe. It felt If it felt safe for you to embody your authenticity from the beginning, you would never have needed it. It is intelligent and it is innocent. And the good news is you're listening to this podcast right now. So you know <laughs> that you're also embodying your true self. There's a part of you that knows what is true and real underneath all of the defense. And it's like, if you listen to the previous episodes, it's like the conversation I had with Camlin, where one part of you has an addiction, fear, and one part of you wants to heal from that addiction, love. You are all of it. You are both of it. And so it's totally okay if you're finding that the way you're thinking about yourself is really to objectify yourself because that's not you, you know, that's not the truth of who you are. That's what you've internalized so that you could feel safe in this scary world full of other human beings. Now, having said all of that, I want to share with you that it's not just about the way that you see yourself being reflected back to you in things like the mirror or pictures or even your clothes. But this is just kind of an entry point to the conversation because most of us are, you know, passing a mirror at some point every day. So it's just a good way to kind of find yourself and the truth of where you are with this right now. But the reason that I want to start there and continue the conversation is because Whether your true or false self is kind of driving the bus around your relationship with your body, it is also most likely influencing the way that you treat yourself with and around food and exercise. So that's why when it comes to healing your relationship with food and actually getting somewhere with the quote unquote disordered eating issue, the first thing is we have to understand that It might just be that your false self is trying to feel safe and driving the bus. And it also has everything to do, most likely, with how you're feeding yourself. So at the root of it, that's what we have to talk about, is where is your false self in charge right now? Because if your false self is in charge, that means you're not embodying your true self. And if you're not embodying your true self, where is that energy going to go? So you can think about it this way. If it felt safe for you to organically just eat when you were hungry 
and stop when you were full, you would be, quote unquote, intuitively eating with ease. So just take a moment to think about as a kid, what was it like for you around food and eating? Did it feel safe? Was it possible for you to eat when you were hungry and stop when you were full? As a teenager, as a young adult, in the society that we live in, did it feel safe for you to feed yourself? And if it felt safe for you to just be in the body that you were in naturally, as a kid, as a teenager, as a young adult, you wouldn't be feeling the need to compulsively control or change it. So what I'm saying is, if you're struggling with food and eating now, today, as an adult, the question, as we've discussed over the last few episodes, is really around where did you get disconnected from yourself to begin with? When did you begin to perpetuate the belief system of the false self from that process of socialization because it didn't feel safe for you to embody your true self? So some examples of this, just to bring this down into, you know, earth, what this might look like for you is maybe that memory you have of that time in elementary school when you went to the doctor and you were eight or nine years old and your doctor suggested that you're getting a little heavy and maybe should lose some weight. And maybe that was a conversation your doctor had with your parents and maybe you overheard it. But so maybe what started to happen was that you started skipping meals even though you felt hungry. Because again, your beautiful brain learned that this is a way for you to be good and follow the rules and do what your doctor told you because your doctor wears a white coat and you're supposed to follow along with that. And so this is how it can start. I had a client of mine years ago who remembered during our work together that when she was around eight, nine, 10 years old, she would go outside the doctor's office before she went in for her checkup to her pediatrician so that she could make herself throw up. And I'm sharing this because it's these moments where we don't wanna put too much emphasis on the substance of food or the behavior around food when the real root of it is that it didn't feel safe to embody our bodies. It didn't feel safe to just exist the way that we existed. So we started using food and eating and dieting and weight loss as a way to just control and manage and try to fix and solve and save so that we could feel safe. And maybe it didn't start that young for you. Maybe in middle school, you had an experience where a boy called you fat. And so you learned, well, what happens when a boy calls you fat or someone calls you fat? Well, again, your brain, because it feels threatened, it feels scared, it feels unsafe because the society has made it so that you brilliantly learn to start counting calories, for example. So maybe now you're 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, and now you're building the habit of turning food into numbers. And even there, you can see we're choosing attachment over authenticity because food in the present moment, right? You taste it, you smell it, you feel it. But 
when we're in our false self and we're choosing attachment, we're not feeling it. We're not in the present moment. We're not in our bodies for food. We're turning it into numbers and we've gone into our brain now. And it's, again, just an example of how that might manifest for some of us. And maybe, maybe you got through all of elementary school and middle school without ever thinking about your body. And then you joined a sports team and your coach told you to lose a few pounds. And so, right, what happens when you're 16, 17, 18 years old? Well, you're really well-versed in diet culture at that point, most likely. And maybe you take it upon yourself to go on some sort of diet. And maybe you've been yo-yo dieting ever since. But the point in asking these questions and just going through your life in this way is to just start seeing, getting really compassionately curious around when, why, where, and with whom did you start to embody a false self over a true self? And ultimately, when did you start putting the need to look a certain way over getting your own needs met? That's the question. So I'm saying all of this because again, if you are listening to this podcast and you are struggling in your relationship with food, it's not the food and eating that needs your attention. It's because most likely the false self is the one in charge. And that makes a lot of sense because your brain is habitual and runs the same tape over and over and over again. And if you're not paying attention and becoming conscious of your thoughts and becoming aware of why you're doing what you're doing, it becomes your autopilot. And that's not your fault. But if you're struggling in your relationship with food, I want you to see that the root of it is not about food, it's because you're not embodying your true self. And so these thoughts, this belief system, this narrative of your body being an ornament that has to look a certain way or weigh a certain thing is keeping you in that habit of choosing attachment. And the consequence to that is that you are therefore neglecting your authenticity. And what that might look like in a granular sense today is not eating breakfast when you're hungry because you want to save calories for later in the day, right? You can feel how that's fear-based. It's, I don't want to eat too much. I'm afraid it might be too much. Whereas authenticity would be getting your needs met, responding to the need of your body, eating because you are hungry. Another example I hear a lot is having coffee for lunch because it has zero calories, so again, just that fear-based way of avoiding food, avoiding calories, avoiding anything that might lead in your brain to weight gain. Not because it necessarily will or because it's true, but because you're living with dysfunctional and limiting beliefs. And that is playing out around your relationship with food. Another example when it comes to movement and exercise would be forcing yourself to go work out even though you feel exhausted and you're tired. And maybe a part of you knows that this is not really what you need today. This is not listening to your body, but you feel like you have to. You feel unsafe if you don't. You feel like if you're not embodying that kind of control, that it won't feel safe. And so you might have all the good intentions in doing this. However, when you are existing within this paradigm and really perpetuating this belief system, the really unfortunate thing is that you're not actually taking care of the vessel that is your home, that is your body. 
you're not really rebuilding and strengthening your mind-body connection and relationship with yourself, what ends up happening is that because we want to feel safe in this social society, we actually end up neglecting the needs of our own body because we're objectifying it. So again, instead of responding to hungry and full, we're just looking outward to say, well, if I want to look a certain way, how am I supposed to eat to get there, right? And so if you're not aware of the thoughts going on inside, you may just mindlessly be behaving this way around food and eating in your body, and you are unintentionally perpetuating that cycle of living in what is not true for you. So the internalized cultural narrative is the reason you end up abandoning yourself. So everyone's favorite question is, all right, Lisa, what do we do about it? <laughs> if we are struggling with the true self, false self, and we are objectifying our bodies, and it's so habitual, then what are we supposed to do about this? Well, glad you asked. Here's how I think about it. The way that you come back home to yourself and start embodying your truth is you get your needs met. This is also known as the process of re-parenting because when you are parenting yourself and you are making sure that you get your needs met, you are embodying authenticity and slowly but surely, you start to teach your brain that it is safe to do that that you don't need to keep relying on this false sense of safety that comes from external approval and validation and reward because you are getting your needs met internally and you start to receive safety and embody safety and create safety from the inside, not looking for it on the outside. And so one way, the way that I talk about this in regards to reparenting. Why is it called reparenting? Well, you can think of your body kind of like a child. You are a parent now, and your body is your child. And the reason I say that is because it needs food. And you wouldn't starve a child if it was hungry. You would feed it. And so it also needs water when it's thirsty. It needs rest. They need movement. And so you can think of yourself as a parent and your body as a child, just like the inner child who has needs. And so the fact that you have needs, physical and emotional, that's not up to you. You don't really have control there and you don't have power there. We all have needs. The question is, are you the parent meeting them or not? And for many of us, the internalized diet culture is the reason we have stopped meeting our own needs, right? We're not eating when we're hungry because we want our body to look a certain way. And the result of that is that we're getting out of touch with ourselves and really disconnecting from ourselves because we're not meeting our own needs. So here's a simple way of thinking about it. Your needs are physical as well as emotional. And you have other needs, right? You have spiritual and social needs and things like that. But in terms of just taking care of your body right now, we're talking about physical needs like eating, drinking, resting, moving, and emotional needs to be seen, heard, loved, and validated in your experience as you are. And so if you're the parent and you are in charge of taking care of your body, 
Well, the way that we can start to really heal our relationship with food is not focusing on the food or the eating, but by focusing on getting our needs met. And you can start practicing by eating when you're hungry, even if that brings up some fear or discomfort, and resting when you're tired, even if that brings up some fear or discomfort. What you're going through there is what I consider withdrawal. And so it can bring up some anxiety if you start to get your needs met because you can almost think of it as like an addiction to attachment. If we're addicted to attachment and the external and the false self has what helps us feel safe, well then dipping into our authenticity, actually embodying our truth, getting our needs met may not feel safe right now. And that's okay. That's okay. It's not your fault. And it is your responsibility. So what you want to start to practice is really that, getting your needs met, especially as it comes to food and eating, eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full. So I want to share with you a couple personal stories that really embody to me and illustrate this concept of the true and false self and what this looked like for me and how it manifested for me. And what maybe you can learn from that around where you are with all of this. And the first thing that comes to me is after I had lost all my weight and I was terrified, absolutely terrified of gaining it all back, of losing control over my body, over food, over all of it. And I was just living in this place of fear. And if you, some of you may have heard this story before, but the long story short there is... After that experience, I went back to the University of Michigan after the summer and I was beginning my junior year. And at the beginning of my junior year, I decided I was going to go abroad for the second half of the year. And at the time, I remember I was having a conversation with a therapist and a nutritionist every week to make sure that I was eating enough food and to really restore my body from the starvation mode that it was in. And when I told the nutritionist that I had been speaking to that I was going to go on semester at sea and I was going to get on a ship and travel all around the world, her response to me was, you know, do you really think that's a good idea? Like you're so afraid of all food. You're afraid of eating anything that you haven't prepared yourself or know an exact calorie count for. You know, how, how are you going to get on the ship? and travel the world and I remember saying and feeling like at that point in my life it felt so clear to me that it felt to me like my brain had been infiltrated it felt really clear to me that the way that I was treating myself and living in absolute terror around food and eating and my body and my lifestyle It didn't feel like me. It didn't feel like myself. It didn't feel like my own. It felt like somehow this belief system infiltrated my brain and now it was everything. It was just making my life really small and really fear-based. And so I remember saying to Mary, the nutritionist, as well as my therapist and anyone else that questioned my decision, that was, I have to come back to myself And part of the reason that I wanted to go on Semester at Sea was because I knew that it was going to be the hardest thing, 
but that it was going to result in me coming back to myself. And the reason I say it was going to be the hardest thing was because I didn't know what I was eating. I didn't know the calories of what I was eating. I had no way of tracking anything. Um, There was a tiny little gym on the ship that wasn't really a gym. Um, I was running every day at that point and I was not even going to be on land and ultimately there was no scale on the ship because even if you get on if you've ever lived on a ship (laughs) and you get on a scale um, you really can't get a read because the ship wobbles and so does the scale so at that point it felt to me like I was so addicted to counting tracking weighing portioning just limiting my life in that way and living in fear but it really felt like a false self to me and so I went I chose to go on semester at sea really for in I mean in part because I really wanted to travel the world and I knew this was an incredible once in a lifetime experience but the reason that I chose to not not go (laughs) was because I knew I could do a hard thing And I knew that it was going to make me feel really anxious and really scared and I was going to cry a lot and it was going to be really painful to lose the control or give up and release the control around the things like the scale and my body and food and knowing every calorie. But that, that lifestyle was going to help me recover. And so it felt to me like the conscious decision to know that it was going to be hard and it was going to feel scary and uncomfortable and it was going to make me anxious and I was choosing it because the only thing worse than doing it was not doing it. The only thing worse than throwing myself on that ship and into a life of recovery was staying there, staying where I was and feeling like I didn't have control over the thoughts in my brain and the way that I was objectifying my body at that point. So this one really specific memory comes to mind, and I'll read you just a bit of a journal entry from Semester at Sea, but the context is I was in Japan, and we were in Kobe in Japan, and for any of you steak people out there, (laughs) Kobe beef, right? Like Kobe beef is supposed to be the best steak in the world, and I am a steak person myself. And so this was just an example very early on, on my experience on semester at sea where I really had a choice between love and fear I really had a choice between living life and restricting life and I remember thinking to myself I am in Kobe Japan I am on semester at sea and if I go to Kobe and I have the opportunity to eat the best of in the world of my favorite food I'm not going to not do that because of the fear that it brings up in me. I will not allow myself to restrict myself from this kind of experience, from this kind of life. I made a commitment to myself before I got on the ship that I was not going to put my body weight, shape, and size over the experience of living life. That was a commitment I made to myself and Kobe, Japan was really one of the first opportunities that I had to embody that and to really do that for myself. And so I remember 
having a moment where I was sitting at the table and it was like a five course meal or something. And I, re- I have a specific memory of watching these potatoes like sizzle in oil on the grill right in front of us. And I was calculate. I was trying to figure out how many calories was going to be in this meal. How many calories are in that potato? How many calories are in the oil? How much butter are they using? Ba 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 ba. Could not stop that tape from playing, and I was really aware of that. And sipping on wine with my friends. And after a little bit of time of me just noticing and really allowing that kind of fear to come up, I made the choice to say. We're doing this. We're doing this. I know that this is scary. I know that this makes you feel unsafe. I know that not having a calorie count for this meal doesn't feel okay because until now, that hasn't been, you know, the way I've been doing it. And the only option is to restrict from this meal or to live this meal. Like, how are we going to do this? Who is the person I want to be in this moment of difficulty and struggle? And so I remember choosing to eat all the things, to enjoy all the things, to stay present with all of the things. And I remember calling my mom and I was crying. And I remember she was like, why, why did the Kobe beef make you cry? And I remember, ah, I'll never forget this. She said, are you crying because you couldn't eat it? And I said, no, I'm crying because I could. And I did. And even though I was really scared and I felt like it was going to literally kill me, I did it. I ate the food. And it's all okay. It was really hard. It was really scary. And I'm still kind of scared of it, but it's okay. I made it. I survived. And this is what I wrote in my journal the next day, 2014. Last night was a great epitome of the beauty of putting the priority of experiencing culture and travel over the concern of food. It was the best meal of my life and I enjoyed it. Months ago, I wouldn't have even let myself consider a meal like that. I've made a lot of progress, but there's a lot of progress still to be made. This trip, I realized today, is the pathway to recovery. I know that I've been considering it to be a forced transition because that's exactly what it is. But I realized today that the significance of that means that crossing this bridge that is these months eventually leads me to a life without a disorder. Every time it gets really hard, which seems to be quite literally every few minutes, I need to keep in mind the long-term effect of what this trip is giving me. I was crying last night because of how I feel so victimized by this struggle, but simultaneously I welcome it at the same time. I'm terrified of all the unknown. I don't know what I'm eating and I don't know how many calories I'm taking in or putting out. I don't know how much I weigh and I won't know until I get off the ship. These are and have been my biggest fears for the past few months. I am so scared but repeatedly putting myself in these situations is how I will get over this. And I want, I need more than anything to get over this. 
the desire I have to live free from an eating disorder outweighs all the fear. And the reason I share this with you is because it may for you, it may be that extreme, it may be to that degree, but it may not be. But all of it is really, to me, the conversation and the action of A, becoming aware of your thoughts, B, allowing there to be space for your fear emotionally, letting yourself be anxious, letting yourself tell the truth that it doesn't feel safe, but you're going to do it anyway. And then ultimately, see, taking that action, doing that thing that scares you, because you want to be in a place where you recognize you are fear and you are love. You have both of them. One part of you might be afraid of eating it. One part of you knows that this is what you want to choose for yourself. And that is what I want to leave you with this week is you have that power, you have that strength, and you have the courage within you to start living the life that is really aligned with your true self. You have the power to be choosing your authenticity over attachment. And ultimately, you have the power to start living as your true self rather than your false self. So just notice throughout this next week, as all of this is marinating, Notice where you might be limiting yourself. Notice where you might be letting fear drive the bus. And then consider what it might be like to align yourself with the truth. Let yourself be afraid of it. And ultimately know that those moments of struggle and discomfort are leading you to the freedom you desire. So again, just practice this week. Waking up and becoming aware of the autopilot. What are all the thoughts kind of driving the bus going on in your head? And then when you can, when you're aware of it and when it's accessible, take your power back from your false self. So what that means is consciously refuse to perpetuate the belief that your body is an ornament. And so what that means is when you have the urge to skip a meal because you don't like what you see in the mirror, you eat it anyway. When you feel the compulsion to calculate your meal before eating it, you don't. And when you're walking to the gym, even though your body is exhausted, you turn around and you walk yourself back home. I've been there. I mean it. When you wake up and notice that you're behaving in a way that says your body has to look or weigh a certain thing, you just cut that out. (laughs) You just stop doing it. Abstinence. You're practicing abstinence. And ultimately, you use that power to come back to your true self. You consciously choose to embody the belief that your body is your home. You eat when you're hungry, even though that scares you. You rest when you're tired, even though it feels uncomfortable. You learn to practice giving yourself a break, even if you feel unproductive, etc. Right? Because this is not just food and eating. This is also living in the grind culture as well. That any kind of rest or receiving or pleasure or reward feels a little bit unsafe. So just notice all of that. Where are you perpetuating that with your actions and where can you start to take your power back? In some ways, you can do that around food. And if you're looking for food, freedom, peace, and power, this is how we get there. And lastly, to me, you guys, this is what coming out of the cave is really about. Being out of the cave is that you are aware of your false self and you're choosing when you can and when it's accessible to embody your truth. That's what it means. So 
Having said all of that, I hope this makes sense. I hope this resonates. Please let me know if you have any questions. Lisa at lisaschlossberg.com. That'll be in the show notes. Always feel free to email me. Let me know your thoughts, any other requests or anything you want me to talk about. And if you're a listener of the Out of the Cave podcast and you want to be on a podcast episode, please feel free to also email me. I would love to connect with you. As always, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening. If you are enjoying this podcast, please do rate, review, and subscribe and feel free to be in touch. I love you so much. I hope you have the best week ever. Bye.